welcome to Hitchcocktober. This one is kind of an emergency uh, reschedule. We had the birds on the schedule for about 11 months. Yeah. And, guys, we're at the mercy of what we can get from uh, the libraries often. Let that be a credit to what kind of library systems we have access to. Yeah, that we were dependent on them actually having it. (laughs) And it wasn't that they didn't have it. It was that The Birds is kind of a popular movie. Oh, I see, yes. Yeah, of course they had it. They have pretty much the full Hitchcock catalog, except for his very early stuff that isn't on DVD anyway, so... uh, Right. But we had to make a last-minute reschedule, and uh, I think that one worked out for the okay, because... You can go elsewhere for a lot of thoughts on the birds. This year, we're kind of dipping into more obscure territory, and I kind of like that. The other four we've done so far are kind of major and what he's known for. Uh, these are probably what he's a little less known for. Yeah. I mean, certainly Vertigo is considered his best film. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, Trouble with Harry is a comedy. Yeah. And I, I should stress, I, I, I do think Vertigo, uh, the, the people who've said it's his best film, I don't think they're wrong. Looking back on it a year later, I am still very deeply impressed with it. Mm-hmm. But today we're looking at a film that Hitchcock didn't actually like. Yeah? Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, we are looking at a movie that Hitchcock was actually let down by. In fact, this is a movie that I, from reading about it, nobody came away from it particularly happy with it. Uh, we are looking at the 1948 experiment, Rope. As I said, this is a movie that is known for two things, uh, being one simulated shot and being in real time. Neither of those are true, actually. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of get that on the table right now. Neither of those facts are actually true of the film. Yeah, there are a couple cuts. I should stress, um, a reel of film back in that day was like 15 minutes, so no shot lasts longer than that. Like, longer than 10, actually. But, like, he kind of made it, as seamless as he could, but there are some places where they're just plain cut to this over here. Also, the film's pretense of real time is very, very obviously not there. Yeah. If you examine the events of this film, they really should be taking place over about two, two and a half hours, and the movie runs a mere 80 minutes. Yeah. So... It's it's not a it, it's it's not a fully successful illusion either. Yeah. All that said, I mean it's definitely it's it's a single it is a single location and it tries to approximate those things. I think is the best way of putting it. It tries to approximate these effects without really you know I mean it does as close as it can get. I thought um, I certainly di- wasn't bothered by the cuts. I mean it's not a Michael Bay film. You hardly notice them. I mean. Ironically enough, the only times when you do notice them are when you can see where he tried to be seamless. Mm-hmm. Even then, it's rather smooth. I mean, every time he does that, like, he usually, the camera goes into someone's back and then kind of goes back out. Um, and there is overlapping dialogue. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's definitely a coherent sense of time and place in this movie. And, I mean, honestly, it, the quote-unquote cuts are about as distracting as they were in uh, Birdman. Right. Which also was one simulated shot, but made no pretense of being uh, real, not even remotely real time. It takes place over several days. And really, when you get right down to it, not even remotely wanting us not to notice the cuts. I mean, right. I uh, we, I've give, I gave my thoughts on Birdman earlier this year. Um, yeah. As I said, this is a film that Hitchcock was disappointed in because he thought it was an unsuccessful experiment. He wanted to actually pull off 
uh, a one-take film. He wanted, that was what he wanted to do. He wanted to actually pull this off. And he couldn't. He was technically limited. I firmly believe if he was working today, he would get he would get his one take. He would get his wish, yeah. I mean, it's been done by the likes of uh, Russian Ark, which is actually one take. Yes, and there are a number of other small independent films. Nobody has ever been able to do it on a major studio film, and I don't know that it's I don't even know that it's possible. Yeah, I think there's too many technical limitations that have to be factored in. It would be a pain in the ass. I mean, you have to factor in the fact that film sets are not... It's not just the camera. There is so much equipment that you run the risk of showing. And Oh, let me talk briefly about how they... Like, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that they pulled off to get this to work. Because there are... It takes place in one apartment. There are three little rooms... Like, it never goes into the kitchen. Like, the entire side of the apartment is never shown, a la sitcom. Yeah. But, you know, the camera does go in and out of these rooms, so... Cameras in that time were huge. So they had to majorly accommodate for those, so... That set actually does have a lot of tricks, sliding walls and movable furniture and, you know, stuff like that. That they had to meticulously coordinate. Yeah. I, I can I, I can imagine. I mean... Yeah. And of course, not to mention the, uh, you know, most of it takes place in like the living room where it, uh, it overlooks the city. That's an elaborate miniature set within itself with its own like lighting that they had to kind of, that it takes place in the evening. So they had to change it throughout the film uh, very subtly. Yeah. It's kind of nice. It is. And I mean, it's one of those things, it doesn't look quote unquote real, but it looks compelling. I mean, yeah. You're you're not distracted by it, but at the same time, there's also no illusion of realism. Um, I think part of that was helped by the uh, Technicolor, which always kind of gave things a certain amount of unreality. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. Technicolor, the colors were always so bright and so bold, and so I think that did kind of help just give a subtle layer to the mind's eye of, hey, this is, you know, there's a level of reality that we're playing on here that may not quite be the same one that you're used to. Yeah. It, it is a gorgeous-looking film, I should say. It Really, it's well-lit, it's well-shot, um, and it, it it is smoothly directed. Yeah, especially the end, there is a thing that's not really, like, drawn to... Like, there's a set of windows on the other side of that that has... There's a neon sign mm-hmm. right outside the window. Oh, yes. A la Vertigo, as a matter of fact. And that doesn't turn on until the last scene of the movie. The the climax, if you will. It's to great effect. It switches from like red to green. It gives just that much more tension. Mm. By the way, let's talk about what that neon sign is. Because that's our way of getting to the necessary question that you always have when you watch a movie like this. Mm-hmm. That's the Hitchcock cameo. Oh, really? Yeah. The, is that what that says? It's uh, a weight loss product, a fictional weight loss product, and Hitchcock's profile. <laughs> His signature profile, as in from oh the TV God. series, is used. Oh, that's funny. And so that's how he gets his cameo in, because obviously with the very limited cast, there's no other way to get him in there. I wondered. I was I was looking for him on the uh, on the street shot in the beginning of the film, no. and I didn't find him, so he's not. there you go. 
that's how Hitchcock gets into the movie. It, it, as that's it, funny. It's a fascinating film on a technical level, so I think it might surprise people to say that's actually like one of the last things about this movie I'm really all that interested in. Yeah. Because I, I'm just going to say right now, I don't actually agree with... Uh, Hitchcock and uh, James Stewart did not like the film very much. Stewart considered it his worst performance in one of Hitchcock's films. Ah. Uh. I'll say this, so far I'm not quite disagreeing with with Stewart. I don't think it is his strongest. I mean, certainly next to the absolute... I mean, he may never have been better as an actor than he was in Vertigo. Yeah. He may never have been as good of an actor as he was in Vertigo. And I liked him in Rear Window, though I didn't like the film as much. I don't think I even liked it as much as its reputation, really. I mean, that's just to be honest. I, As I think back on it, 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 is, it is a slight film, but I think it's more ambitious than this one. I just, I, it's not that I think it's a bad film. I think it's a good film. I just have a few issues with it. But um, neither here nor there. Um, Stewart is definitely, this is definitely a, a more minor performance. Part of the problem is that Stewart is obviously supposed to be playing older than his age. Uh, I don't think he was, he wasn't yet 40 when he did this movie. And so there is kind of some transparent aging him up that is not all that effective. I mean, in reality, he was about 12 years older than the uh, actors that were playing his quote-unquote students. So, I... Yeah, yeah, he plays a uh, professor. Uh-huh, so, yeah, he he would have been the hip young teacher. I didn't quite buy that. I, I, I do understand what, where Stuart is coming from, and I, I definitely am going to get into... There's a key scene as to why I think I understand where Stuart is coming from. But I like the movie more than they did, definitely. I'll say that right off the bat. It's so smooth, it's so brilliant, it's so gorgeous. It is a it is a small film, but it's but I think we make a mistake when we don't treat small films with the respect that they deserve as small films. The story is about as simple as it gets. Um, two men decide to commit a murder, and the film opens with the murder pretty much having been committed. With a piece of rope. Title... Yes. <laughs> we have our title. And they stuff him in a trunk. For the thrill of it. A trunk that uh, proceeds to become the film's uh, MacGuffin. And this this is pretty much the definition of a MacGuffin for Hitchcock. I mean, because we are, we are waiting for that trunk to be opened. We know it's going to be opened, but it's just a matter of when. Murder can be an art, too. The power to kill can be just as satisfying as the power to create... You realize we've actually done it exactly as we planned. And not a single infinitesimal thing has gone wrong. It was perfect. Yes. An immaculate murder. We've killed for the sake of danger and for the sake of killing. We're alive. Truly and wonderfully alive. Even champagne isn't equal to us or the occasion. I'll take it, though. That's literally their entire reasoning, is they want to, they want to kill him. And then they decide to invite over a bunch of people with connections to the victim. They are sadistic bastards. The guy is even supposed to be at the party. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be at the party. So who do they invite over? Well, they invite over his fiancée. They invite over one of his friends. Uh, and the uh, fiancée's ex-boyfriend. The love triangle where one of the pre one of the people is dead. All of this is being done so that the orchestrator of uh, things... Uh, Really, the 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 main of the two men, uh, Brandon, played by John Dahl, so that he can try and get uh, the fiance to get back together with her ex-boyfriend. 
because he's really a sick monster. So this is his plan. And again, he's got his parents there. And just to make things worse, just, you know, cause let's make sure the knife gets twisted in. Uh, they, they invite over their professor who first put these ideas in their head. Now, you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may, and I do. Think of the problems it would solve. Unemployment, poverty, standing in line for theater tickets. <laughs> what a divine idea. If it suits your purpose merely, but then we'd all be murdering each other. Oh, no. Oh, no. After all, murder is, or should be, an art. Not one of the seven lively, perhaps, but an art nevertheless. And as such, the privilege of committing it should be reserved for those few who are really superior individuals. And the victims, inferior beings whose lives are unimportant anyway. Obviously. And this is an idea that has shown up in literature before. I had to pause for a moment to talk about uh, Crime and Punishment, because that's what this reminded me hard of, was uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, which is one of my favorite books of all time. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I think this movie, which was made in 1948, so let's not call it current. I mean, for the love of God, my dad was born the same year. It, but, it, you know, but it shows that these ideas are still relevant. I think you could very easily take these ideas and apply them to the modern uh, age. Uh, the idea that, okay, well, some people are better... And, you know, especially with the new atheism, there is so much you could do with this. Note, I am not arguing that atheists are godless murderers. That is the opposite of what I am arguing. No. No. Yeah, let's, let's get that as underlined as hard as we can. Morality is drawn from society, not religion. <laughs> Let's, like, like we really need to underline that as hard as we can. The desire not to kill is based on the fact that it's wrong not on supernatural means there the film room does not endorse murder we could definitely do a nice long list of all the uh, people who've killed in the name of faith so uh yeah yeah there uh there well that's just it i mean that's that's the idea is the idea of superiority because that is an idea that is showing up in literature and that you are starting to see hardcore um so these are i this is an idea that is not it's not new and it's also not dating if that makes sense. This is not an idea that feels like it's ridiculous. Uh, as long as people have an excuse to justify their arrogance, the idea of, of certain groups being superior to others is always going to be relevant. And that's what this film really looks at, is fundamentally the idea of are, people, are other people superior to other people? I mean, and the film comes down very firmly on the idea of no. Mm -hmm. In fact, it kind of argues that if you're going to be convinced that, that if you're convinced that you're worthy of taking another person's life, you've kind of proven you're not. Yeah, exactly. So, again, th this this is a very simple film. It's a few scenes, um, a few very drawn-out scenes at that. A lot of conversation. There's really uh, before the party, the party, and then after the party. It's, it's a short film. This is only an 80-minute movie. And it feels like an 80-minute movie. I mean, it is... This is, this is very much a get-in, get-out, get-gone. Get we, we, we do not have much time to linger on things. Not surprisingly, I expect this to be a fairly short cast, just because there isn't much of this movie. There isn't much to it. I will say that Hitchcock does load it down with 
There's a lot of detail in it. <laughs> yeah, this is a deeply detailed film. This is a film where you need to pay attention to every element of the frame. It all means something. It all does mean. Even little things that aren't necessarily essential to the plot, like there's a part where um, Stuart's character, who we should say, from the moment he shows up about half an hour in, he suspects that something is weird about this yeah. whole thing. And he's interrogating Farley Granger's character. Is playing the piano. Stuart takes a metronome while he's playing. He's like, you use this? Sometimes. I thought only beginners did. I must say. All right, I'll ask you. What do you suspect? As he presses him further and further, he'll just, he'll take it and make it go faster. You're, uh, more than usually allergic to the truth tonight, Philip. Just ratcheting up the tension. Like, that's such a Hitchcock touch. Yeah, it is. And it's it's such a, a clever one. And it really, it's, yeah. it's, again, Stewart only shows up, tw- I checked it, it's 28 minutes into an 80-minute film. And Stewart was top billed. So if you're going to this movie thinking that it's going to be a vehicle for him, you're going to be severely let down. He's really support to the other two actors. And, as I said, that would be much more frustrating if the other two actors weren't really phenomenal in this film i have to mention i do like the offhand nod to cary grant yes yeah <laughs> yeah that when they're t- trying to remember the film i'll take cary grant myself oh so will i oh he was living in that new thing with bergman what is it called now the something of the something no no that was the other one this was just plain something you know it was Sort of, you know. Right, right on the tip of my tongue. You know the film that they're trying to remember? Oh, God. No, I didn't. <laughs> Notorious. Notorious. Oh, Jesus, of course. Uh-huh. That wasn't just, yeah, that wasn't just a nod to Cary Grant. That was a nod back to uh, Hitchcock himself. Nice. And, of course, uh, Grant and, uh, there's references to Cary Grant and James Mason in this film. Well, okay, a decade later, and back at the uh, beginning of Hitchcocktober, um, uh, there was uh, North by Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> something by something. Yeah. I, which, uh, which, uh, which would be made a decade later. So um, that's kind of a nice... Again, obviously Hitchcock had a relationship with Grant having worked with him on uh, Notorious. And so... But still, just kind of nice to see that. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. It's, an, it's a nice little in-joke. It is. I mean, when you have such little material i mean you have to you have to use what you can and it is interesting that he was able to get that in of course the centerpiece of the film is when stewart's professor uh, cadell gives this long speech about why murder is justified and why and when why and when and it's hilarious yeah he's talking about it with this older sweet lady and that seems to be kind of a thing in this isn't the first film I've seen of his with where an older sweet lady is talking about murder. This also happens in Strangers on a Train. That's one we really we don't we should have paired we should have paired this one with um, yeah. with Strangers on a Train for obvious reasons. Yeah. One of which we're going to get to in a, in a little bit, but the ob- obvious one was Farley Granger. Oh, that'll probably that'll probably be top of the billing next year. Yeah, probably so because that's the uh, uh, Granger, Patricia Highsmith. Uh, there's there's all kinds of reasons. 
And because by this time next year, we may be seeing uh, forward motion on the uh, remake. Oh, really? Yeah, there's going to be a remake. Oh, my God. I'm not sure how to feel about that. Uh, I can uh, give you some details that will tell you how to feel about it. Uh, scripted by Gillian Flynn and directed mm. by the only man who should <sighs> even be allowed the privilege of getting to remake a Hitchcock film, uh, David Fincher. Ah. Uh, okay, yes, I'm on board. Yeah, because um, I... I think Fincher is the only person directing movies today that should even be allowed. Obviously, you know, if Spielberg or Scorsese wanted to do one, that's different. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it should only be... I mean, Fincher's the guy that I would want doing a Hitchcock remake because he gets he gets it. I would also be interested in seeing what Quentin Tarantino could do with a uh, Hitchcock-esque film, but, he's, but I don't want him ever doing remakes, so... No, he needs to do his own stuff. But anyway, yeah, so, yeah, he has this long scene where Stewart lays out when and why it's okay to commit murder. And it feels very influential of discussions we've had that you see people doing later. Uh, George Carlin uh, has a routine about this subject uh, where he talks about one day of legalized murder. Right, yeah, I've very much thought of the purge when i was listening to that it's like oh well you know if hitchcock directed the purge i think it would be okay yeah i think hitchcock would actually probably do something interesting with the purge um mm -hmm. oh god Ugh. <laughs> but it, it's it is a great sequence and, and stewart plays it up he hams it up hard playing up these just the silliness of this idea i mean because he's like come on this is this is ridiculous but but he takes us through it you can, yeah, you can tell when he's, like, it's purely hypothetical. Like, you know, like I said, the old lady is playing along, you know, and, um, you know, certain members of the party aren't liking it. But it's, it's funny. But it is, yeah, it's obviously supposed to not be serious. And Stuart being Stuart, he's so charismatic in it, and just so, so completely making you believe that everybody at the party would be paying attention to this guy. Right. And he delivers it really well. This is a high point, which is funny because he then has the inverse scene later on in the film, and I actually found that to be one of the weakest scenes in the entire film, to be honest. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because let, let's just go on ahead and get through things the, uh, real quick on the plot. We know that obviously these guys are going to get caught. This is a 1948 movie. There's no way on earth they're getting away with murder. They're going to be caught. They're going to be caught, and it's going to be bad. We know that's coming. In our head, there is a continual countdown clock. The way that Stuart figures out that they've done this deed is the most contrived reason on Earth. It is, it is deus ex machina at its worst, which is he's accidentally handed the wrong hat. Yeah, that is pretty contrived, yeah. He then, of course, naturally puts it together that, he's, that the guy has been here. He puts it together from the strange behavior of the men that, oh, you've, you've offed the guy. And uh, he then proceeds to come back and interrogates them and immediately repudiates all of his ideas. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not that Stewart is particularly bad in the scene. It's that it's a poorly written scene, I thought. It's we need to get to the end, so here it is all laid out. Mm -hmm. It's poorly written because Cadell, he's horrified. And he repudiates all of his ideas. He's like, I never would have suggested these things if I thought you guys were actually going to do them. 
And there's nothing particularly wrong with this scene, but let me tell you why it bugged me. And it did bug the hell out of me. Uh, the movie lets him off the hook, is what it comes down to. Yeah. The movie lets him take the moral high ground way too easily. Sure, he's broken, and he's realized that, you know, everything he's worked for in terms of teaching these guys was worthless. Was worthless in the worst way possible. He, but But the movie lets you feel like, well, he's still okay, because he's admitted he's wrong. I mean, Stewart is still giving his all and still trying to convey this is a man as disgusted as possible, but he should be much more horrified of what has happened than this. He's not he's not disgusted enough. And I don't know, that scene doesn't quite it just doesn't ring quite true to me. When you get right down to it, here's what it is. The movie is having too much fun with the fact that these guys have committed this act. Ironically enough. Yeah, the movie is too much with these guys. It's with the idea of the uh, of the Superman, so to speak. It's with the idea of the Ubermensch. This movie believes it, I think. Which, by the way, philosophically speaking, I don't think Nietzsche really uh, believes that either. No, I don't think he did either. I think it was sim- simply a thought exercise for him. Which, again, which is ironic because uh, Hitler completely did take it seriously. Well, Hitler went full Hitler, what can I say? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I really kind of feel like the movie, it has too much fun with these guys. It has too much fun with what they've done. It it, it it kind of delights too much in it. And so when the movie has to then turn and say, no, what you did was evil. It's kind of a 180. Yeah, and it didn't ring quite true to me. I mean, again, it's still well executed. It, it You know, Stewart still does, he does his best with what's some very clunky writing. But I just couldn't escape the feeling that the movie was having was disappointed that it had to end its fun. Yeah, uh, in a way that's a little anticlimactic, which is probably the whole problem. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what happens when you've got an 80-minute movie. You don't have time to establish all the turns. This is a movie that really needed about 20 minutes more. Uh, we're often talking about movies that needed to be cut. This is a movie that needed a little bit more. And I think it could have handled it. I think it could have held it. Um, as I said, the performances are across the board excellent. Um, the actors were very good. Um, it could have supported more, but it didn't get there. And But it does end. And it, it, it ends with a very not, a, a lovely final shot. And what I think should have unquestionably been the final shot in any version of it. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I mean, am I wrong on this point? No, I think you're right. I think it's a good movie, but um, it's it's definitely an an anticlimax of an ending, and it's it's the final reel of the film that is really the frustrating part. And I I can't help but feel like maybe Hitchcock would agree, would agree because I think Hitchcock was the one who was really having fun with it more than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's face it, Hitchcock made movie after movie about murderers. This was something he enjoyed. He enjoyed depicting it. Yeah, and that comedy we're going to come back to, do you know what the trouble with Harry is? He's dead. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like we're talking around something big about this movie, though. Mm, yeah, we had to get to that eventually. And I've been deliberately delaying it because I think it really takes up the most of what I really wanted to say about this movie. Yeah. Let's get the, Let's make this as clear as we can. This is a movie about two gay men who commit a murder. They are at no time in the film acknowledged as being gay. But 
It's so obvious. Let me list the films. Uh, one of the t- films two screenwriters was a gay man. Arthur Lawrence, in fact, uh, for about a year while working on the film, carried on an affair with Farley Granger, who was bisexual. Uh, John Dahl was a gay man. Uh, the movie is based upon the Leopold and Loeb murders, which was committed by two gay men. The piano piece that is performed in the film was by a gay man. This is a movie that is so steeped in gay subtext that it's really text in the film. Oh god, when they're before the party, when they're talking about what they've done, they might as well be talking about gay sex. This is a movie that is so blatant about about its homosexuality. It's amazing to me. I mean, I don't even I, as I said, you I don't even think you have to squint to see it. These men are obviously a couple. There's just too much in this movie that is just laden with this subtext. You you can see it all over the film. I don't think it I don't think that the movie is trying to go for the killer homosexual trope, thankfully. No. No. I think it's just that these two men happen to be gay. Um as I said, both Granger was bisexual. Um and I I actually read up on his history uh he he was very happily uh his attitude was you know why should i de- deny myself any good experience and by the way i read up on his life his life was pretty awesome actually he had a pretty happy life uh, uh definitely worked in a number of circles um was with his uh longtime partner for many years actually you know and then of course doll also being gay himself i mean this this movie it's so there i don't i don't think that anybody involved in this movie would have worked on it if they thought it was a homophobic project oh no because the movie can't talk about the homosexuality in a way i think that actually makes it it spares it from being particularly homophobic because if it could then it would probably then that would probably be used as evidence for their quote-unquote insanity and of course that's vile and disgusting right as it stands it kind of makes it not that much different from any other movie in this era where two people in love decide that they're able to get away with murder and decide to try it. I mean, there's no there's no physical affection between these men, but they're not really at a moment where they're feel where where that's being felt between them anyway. Oh no. Like they're they're so not at that moment. Not sure if we made it completely clear, but one of the characters is more into it than the other. Yeah, Brandon the uh John Dahl character is very much the instigator and he's the one who's having fun. Uh, Granger's yeah. character is he's terrified. He's he's really, he's sickened by what he's done. He feels tremendous guilt. And he's ultimately the one who cracks and confesses. Yeah. Which you see coming from the, mo- from the first moments of the film. You know he's going to be the one that's going to talk. Yeah, I mean, this movie doesn't it's it's made pretty clear what's going to happen. I mean... So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely there, um, that one of them is more into it than the other, cause that, which is very much a trope of how this is played. One thing we should address is that there was a third homosexual character in the uh, play uh, that this movie was based on who, there's not that subtext, although it should have been there. Let's be clear, Stewart's character was also supposed to be gay. Yeah. And again, in the original play, it was outright text that the that this was the case, and it was also made clearer in the original play that uh, Stewart's uh, Cadell had had an affair with Brandon. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, there was no way on earth Jimmy Stewart was playing that role. 
<laughs> no. It wasn't happening. I think that's a missed opportunity to have left that out. But again, this was a, this was 1948. You couldn't get away with this. But I thought the gay subtext was very effective. I, I, I thought, it, it, in modernizing the film was what I think it really did. Having that subtext, you know, because we live in a world where, let's face it, God knows there are gay people in my world. You know. Same. I get frustrated when I see movies where homosexuality is left completely out or it's limited to just a token. I know gay people. I, I know a lot of gay people. It's 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 not that weird to me. I, 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 I judge movies when they're limited to just a stereotype or none at all. Right. I mean, admittedly, this film does kind of engage in the stereotype because one is more into it than the other of the strong one and the weak one. I a stereotype I have always hated. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, I I feel like that does give the film a very modern edge to it, and it's very effective. I would prefer that we you know not get a lot of. It is kind of sad to me that this is one of the few times that you could see a discernible gay subtext in the movies uh, in this era. Like it seemed like the only way that you could get that subtext was to depict them in a negative light, but let's just hope things have changed. Oh yeah. I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. But um, as I said, I didn't mind it because again, it's the film is based on a true event and the men in question, it, it was, that was part of it. I mean, that was just what it came down to. So I didn't mind that uh, this sub, you know, I didn't mind it because it was based on a true story. Although the, the true story is much more horrifying. Yeah. The men in that case killed a 14-year-old boy. Oh my god. Yeah, a little different. Yeah. Probably couldn't get away with that in a Hitchcock movie where, yeah. Yeah, you, you just couldn't. Um, that story has actually been dramatized, like flat-out dramatized, in uh, two other movies. So, But it, it, it took another decade for them to actually film it. I've seen neither of the films. I have to ask: Are, are there any are, are there any major threads that I, that you want to hit on? Because I've kind of been talking a lot. Like you know, again, it has the Hitchcock touches. You know, he has his own unique way of building suspense through what's happening on the screen, quote unquote, pure cinema. One of the things that they do to kind of quote unquote enhance the uh, that the characters do to kind of well, Brandon does is they're supposed to have dinner. There's the spread is supposed to be on the dining room table. And he has the brilliant idea to use the um, the chest that the body is in as the table. It draws a neon sign to the MacGuffin pretty hard. Oh, yeah. There's a scene where the uh, their housekeeper is clearing off the table. And you know, the camera is on none of the characters, but it's on like the sideways view of her going back and forth and just taking one item at a time while the other characters are talking. And that's uh, really well handled because, you know, it does come to the point where she, after she's cleared them up, she gets all the books that are supposed to be in the chest and kind of starts piling them and you know what's coming. And she starts to open it and one of the characters stops her. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, ah! Which honestly would have felt like a less contrived way to get that out in the open, but... That's true. But I mean that that's that's from this vantage point. I mean, it still would have been a contrivance either way. I mean, I 
But yeah, that was a really well done shot. I mean, the suspense is really well built in the film. Yeah. Oh, he's he's the master. He is. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. The set itself is kind of a character in the film. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a piece of set that's wasted. No, there's not. It's very efficient. It is a very efficient film. I, mean, I, I suppose while we've while we've got this cast up, uh, let's let me just ask you this: This movie brings to mind, of course, other gimmick films, other films that try technical things like this. What are some of your favorites? I mean, movies that try to deal with limited limitations. I will use the example that we just talked about: The Visit. Yeah, the the visit used its found footage. I thought really well. Oh yeah, Birdman, of course. Um, although I wouldn't call that limited. No, I would call that actually going all out with um, what they had. Mm-hmm. Again, Russian Ark. I have seen that. It's it's an interesting experiment. They go all through this. Uh, I forgot what museum it is, but they it's kind of a fantasy realism thing taking you basically on a tour of this museum and they got it in three takes and they only had like two or three days to shoot the thing because they had to close down this museum in order for it to happen yeah that's all i can think of at the moment i've got a few that i would recommend again obviously look i'm never going to stop recommending birdman i know it's a very divisive film but I'm firmly on the loved it camp um you say divisive i say over 90 percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> Yeah, well, get on film Twitter and see how divisive it is. Well, there you go. I personally happen to think that its best picture win was completely justified, and I'm convinced in 20 years we're going to look back at it with a lot more respect. Yeah. The year before, Gravity won Best Director, and mm. it's a lot of long takes, and it's a lot, and it's almost all CGI. Gravity is brilliant. Yeah. But I'm going to go with two others that I think are well worth people seeking out. Number one, uh, Locke. I talked about that earlier, earlier this year. But that is a movie with as many limitations as you can get, which is it's just Tom Hardy in a car taking a drive and taking a real drive at that. Uh, It literally was just Hardy in a car driving and talking on the phone. That's the entire movie. And it's 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 a great film. I that's one that not enough people have discovered yet. And I'm telling y'all. It is amazing, but I'm going to really really throw some people here and recommend a Joel Schumacher film. Hmm. Phone Booth was a very deliberate attempt at a Hitchcock movie. I love Phone Booth. I think Phone Booth is awesome. It is a single location. Colin Farrell is standing in this phone booth, which is, let's face it, patently ridiculous in the modern age, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that movie was really five years past the point that it could have even really been plausible. But it's a good movie. I, I, I really dug Phone Booth. I, I, I think it's held up well. It's a good suspenseful... It's also a short film, too. It's a good suspenseful little film, and uh, I think it's quite good. Farrell is great in it. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland is great in it as the voice on the other end. It's it's good. I, I, I really dug Phone Booth. Um, I always bring up Buried because it frustrates me because I wish it had been a better film. I think the fact that it is a movie that fundamentally cheats the audience by making it so that there's no way it can end any way other than a negative ending frustrates me. I I feel like the movie, we know that this guy is doomed from the start, and I think the movie is in too much of a hurry to get him doomed. I also think that the story it's telling isn't very interesting. 
I think it's a good radio play, but it's not a good movie. So that, that's how I feel about that one. But what's yours you were going to throw out? Yeah, a couple of other ones. Uh, speaking of phone booth, there is one that's similar that Hitchcock made. It's uh, Lifeboat. I haven't seen it, but I do. I understand it does it is a single location film. I believe that was a John Steinbeck script, too. So hmm, I think you're right. The other one that I also haven't seen, but I'd like to see, I've heard a lot about, is uh, My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, I've heard nothing but the best about that one. Yeah. All it is, it's a dinner conversation. That's it. And I hear it's the most compelling thing ever. You can do a lot with this stuff. You can do a lot with limitations. And despite some of my gripes with this movie, I do recommend Rope. Um, I think it, it's definitely a minor film. I definitely think it's it's a wisp, but it's a good wisp. And I think it, it does ultimately work. Yeah. So yeah, definite recommend from me. I think the trouble with Harry will probably be a longer discussion. Oh yeah, because there's much more there. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a movie that even Hitchcock felt was minor. So makes sense. Let, let's let's talk about the whiplash that y'all are about to experience. This week we're covering Hitchcock. Yes, or this month. Yeah. The thing about it is we we can't just do Hitchcock this month because well we don't want to burn out. Right. Next week, we are going from Hitchcock to Seltzer and Friedberg. I forgot. That was next. That is next. Uh, We're doing another short movie, shit. thankfully. Hey, we, we got into this. We are not getting out. It's going to feel so much longer. It is. We are watching Best Night Ever from Seltzer and Friedberg. That is next. Don't be surprised if that one's a longer cast. Just because next week we are really going to tell you what we think of Seltzer and Friedberg. Yeah. No dancing around it. No sarcasm. Well, maybe a little sarcasm. Yeah. We're going to be straight with y'all. The claws are coming out, y'all. We have... We, we... We... Unless the movie's good, you know, that could be a case. We haven't watched it yet. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. That's not happening. <laughs> no. If it is good, if it if it is good, we'll tell you. We 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 did, uh, you know, we've done that before. But yeah, the claws are coming out, y'all. We're going back to Seltzer and Friedberg next week, and I won't say for the last time. We're going back. We, who knows how often we'll go back, but we are going back to deal with their first and to date only non-parody movie. So that's what's ahead for us. Although it could be argued that it's a parody of all things good and decent, but that's a whole no that's a whole other argument. We we we, we got to save our ammo for next week. Um, yeah, you can find us on our blog at thefilmroom.podbean.com. You can find us on our side blog where we are continually doing nostalgia as well as uh, other musings that aren't quite fit for a full cast. That is thefilmroomlobby.wordpress.com. You can find us on our Twitters. We, as a collective, are at FilmRoomCast. Uh, I am at PermanentManPRD. Austin is at UntitledUser. And, of course, that's the uh, Easter Egg Twitter is still out there. We're just waiting for y'all to find it. Yes. You can find us on our Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash thefilmroom. Like us on there. You can email us with suggestions, with... Yeah, we're always open to suggestions, you know, even despite the Patreon. The only difference with the Patreon is we kind of have to do your suggestion. Yeah. And uh, with very limited exceptions, I mean very limited. Yeah. We did Zapped again, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our standards are low there, but... Uh, I won't say our standards are low, we have high standards. But, anyway, 
our standards of what we will watch. So, yeah, email us at filmroompodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, most importantly, support us on Patreon. Uh, we are currently at our $20 mark, which is the weekly, which is very obvious that we have hit. Yeah. Our next mark is 30 which will get us to our own domain and centralized website. We're, we're, we're really working for that one, y'all. Um, it, we have we have some very ambitious plans. Uh, if that one gets hit, we would be going to much more work. Uh, there, we would be giving y'all much more content. We have ideas for future columns. Um, you know, we'd like to do. We'd like to go to more columns. We'd like to go to more content. We we would love to get more stuff out there. Yeah, and we would have much less to say during the wrap up too. Yeah, we would. And we thank our. We always thank our uh, guests or our sponsors. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, thank you, Daisy. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Sean from No Totally. We will see y'all next week, and, uh, oh boy. By the way, uh, patreon.com slash thefilmroom. Oh, yes, 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 yes. We will see y'all next week. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be quote-unquote fun.